0: Hello again. I'm Jacob. Welcome to the show. We have one more new name for the podcast. We're going with Lost Souls for now. and I think I'm going to release a few episodes under this name, so it might will almost certainly be our longest lasting name. We'll see how it grows on me and how much I like it. Today's episode is with Helen Sim. She, is the director of One Salon, which is a community in San Francisco that I've enjoyed being a part of very much. Uh, One Salon is a community that meets every week, uh, that's focused around intentional relating and authentic communication, and I love the community that they're building in San Francisco. I have seen Helen speak at One Salon, uh, and the, the speech of hers that stands out most in my mind was the one on overcoming social anxiety. Uh, I remember being struck by uh, a spreadsheet Helen kept of all the social fears she was working on and I am very impressed by Helen and how confident and comfortable she appears in the social world and it was shocking to me to hear just how much how long of a journey that had been for her and how She had started at a place that was very different from where she ended up, and her speech was inspiring to me to continue to work on the social fears that are holding me back. Um, So we start talking about that, and then we branch out into a few other topics. We talk about vulnerability, which is kind of a hot topic in the world today, Um, but we especially talk about when vulnerability maybe goes too far, like when it maybe starts edging into the pathetic or manipulative realm. And we try to identify like when vulnerability helps and when it hurts. And I, I think that was a very interesting conversation. And we also talk about building community and deep connection in life and intentional practices for doing so. Helen, as director of One Salon, is a bit of an expert in that. So we had to talk about that. Before I jump into the conversation with Helen, I just want to apologize because I was using some new mobile recording equipment for this podcast. And my audio engineer did a good job in trying to correct the audio, but the volume is still just a little bit wonky. Um, and much of the podcast, it sounds a little low. I did successfully listen to it while walking around on some headphones, but if you're in a noisier situation like a car, it might be a little frustrating. I apologize. I'm learning this as I go along. Without any further commentary, here is my conversation with Helen Sim. So hello and welcome to today's show. That was a little formal of me, Helen. I apologize. <laughs> um, today, I am very happy to have with me Helen Sim, the director of One Salon San Francisco And I know Helen because I've heard her speak on many occasions at One Salon, um, and she has a lot to say about life and how to live it, and um, in particular, I heard her give a talk on conquering fears. That was pretty fascinating. Uh, Helen, can we talk a little bit about fear and how to conquer it?
1: I would love to. Well, I guess the first thing that I'm really curious about is, Jacob, what did you... What do you remember from my talk, and what felt salient to you? And then I'm more than happy to dive into Mm -hmm. my background and why conquering fears is important to me.
0: Well, I mean, I think fear is something that follows everyone um, in their life. And to some extent, accomplishing what you want in life requires conquering fear. And there's a lot of times that we learn to be afraid for like valid reasons like early in life because we don't have the resources to deal with the world. And even as adults, like, you know, the world is chaotic. Like, I don't know how to get what I want out of it. Um, Sometimes I don't even know what I want. So, uh, and that uncertainty creates fear. And in order to move forward, you got to figure out a way to just kind of move forward anyways. Uh, and ways of coping with fear or um, coping with chaos chaos is like one of my favorite words lately uh and I remember you having a story of growing up in um and having to be very independent from a young age and and I remember you talking about how that influenced how you sort of approach fearful situations in your present life and uh I don't remember all the details, (laughs) so I hope we have a chance to talk about Uh, that.
1: Absolutely, Um, so thank you for that. I'm always, I think, really interested in what's emotionally salient for people, uh, because what you take away is not what I take away, and what uh, isn't what other people take away. Um, So to share a little bit from uh, my own story, I wouldn't be who I am today if I didn't intentionally set out to conquer my own fears. Uh, so, uh, my backstory is that I was born in Hong Kong and I was separated from my parents uh, at a very early age, um, from about two years old. Uh, and uh, I was born in Hong Kong, stayed in Hong Kong until I was about six years old, and then came to the States.
0: Can I ask you why you were separated, what separated you from your parents?
1: Absolutely. Um, so, My parents uh, first immigrated here. My grandfather was a refugee um, and so got refugee status, um, came from China to the U.S. And then once my grandfather settled here, my parents, who worked in sweatshops in China and then Hong Kong, realized that if they wanted a better future and a better life, um, it wasn't going to be in Hong Kong. And so they saw America as this as this place for a better future. Um, And it was sort of glamorized through TV shows and movies that my parents watch. And they said, okay, I want to go to there. Um, So when they came over here, they realized that they didn't have the capacity to raise two young infants. And so they sent us back to Hong Kong um, so that they could work. And so for most of my, most of my life, uh, my parents worked in sweatshops for over 20 years to try to uh, make a living for both me and my brother. And when I was six years old, I came back to the States and I think what instilled fear into me at a very early age was, I remember my father picked me up and said, Helen, um, you can't, um, you can't let anybody know that you're home alone because if they know that you're home alone, the cops are going to, you know, put us in jail, and you and David are going to be sent to like abusive foster homes. And as an adult, I know that um, that was a precautionary measure um, so that you know no one gets in trouble. But as a kid, when I was six years old, and no having no other measure or Measure of what life was in what life was like in America. I was terrified, and uh, it induced a lot of social anxiety in me. Um, from that point on.
0: So, so just to yeah. make sure I got the, the scene here: um, when you're six years old, you're mm-hmm. you're living in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, what city?
1: I was in Brooklyn. In
0: Brooklyn, mm-hmm. in, so in Brooklyn, New York, mm-hmm. um, and no adult supervision. Nope. How did you get food?
1: Uh, so I believe I would occasionally go to the supermarket and shop, um, for myself. And so we'd have little, like... Uh, on, like envelopes or little packets of money, um, or sometimes my like my parents um, would grocery shop and like put food in the house, but we never overlapped in times. Uh, so my brother and I would fall asleep before my parents got home, and vice versa, they would be asleep when we left for school.
0: Mm-hmm. That's because they were working some odd shift.
1: Mm-hmm. They they probably worked anywhere from fourteen to sixteen hours a day.
0: Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they were basically only home while you were sleeping and then to sleep themselves or and, and then when, when you were awake, they, they were gone. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's scary.
1: <laughs> it was really scary as a kid.
0: And how old was your brother?
1: Uh, my brother was four.
0: Okay. Um, so so you have this experience of fear and being afraid that like child protective services would come and take you away. If they found out how you were living, um, how did that progress as you got older? Like, did you stay fearful, or, or like, how did how did you engage with that?
1: Yeah. Um, so at an early age, I I probably went weeks without speaking to people, um, and if I spoke to a person, it would typically be my brother. Um, so I was afraid of all adults because I thought that. The story that I'd wrapped into my mind was uh, adults c- would know if I were lying, and so I would avoid all eye contact um, from basically everyone. And so, if people talk to me, you know, uh, like ask me directions or ask me to give an answer, I would never look at them um, because I thought they could tell that I was lying. And so, gradually over the years. I just became terrified all, of all people. Um, I would like hunch over, I would like, uh, I would try to make it through the day as invisible as possible um, so that no one really noticed me because I was afraid if someone noticed me, um, something bad would happen.
0: This is kind of surprising to hear as like someone that knows you as an adult because you come across as you know a very extroverted person. Um, who's very active in the community and building community and um, someone that seems to be very comfortable in front of people. So uh, it's just uh, surprising <laughs> t- to hear that this was Helen as, as a child was someone that was almost, almost cringing sounding, the way you describe yourself, like avoiding people at, at all costs.
1: Yeah, and I would say it was a very intense, it took a lot of intention and effort um, in combating that fear because I knew that that was not the life I wanted to live, nor was it I the person that I wanted to be. And uh, this, this actually sounds a little cheesy even when I remember it, but I remember not being happy, but I was a voracious reader and I watched a ton of TV. And I remember feeling like the reality that I was living in was not the reality I wanted. Um, I wanted the reality that my childhood idols had. I wanted the reality that my superheroes had I wanted the boy meets world full house uh, like Mr. Rogers neighborhood kind of life and so I probably read from you know every time I would get home after school I'd read from like 3 p.m to 11 p.m until um, until I went to bed. And I remember reading this one quote um, that said, you know, be the change you wish to see in the world. Um, I was about eight years old at the time. And I still remember that feeling. And so for me at that age, um, social isolation was physically painful. Um, I remember feeling so lonely that it would. Uh, it would feel like uh, like physical like tremors and like sharp pains, uh, and that's how lonely I felt. So, I remember I constantly fantasized about a world and a life where I could, f- I would feel cared for and loved, and I fantasized about this world where. People knew my name and I would walk into a room and someone's eyes would light up because I was there and I made them feel welcome. And so when I read that quote, be the change you wish to see in the world, I realized I was playing the victim. I was blaming the world for not being nice to me. Um, Or I was... uh, secretly bitter or resentful at other people for you know why why aren't they saying hi to me why aren't they laughing with me and why are they just laughing with each other Um, and so after i read that quote i realized wait why am i blaming other people if i want to live in this world that i'm imagining and fantasizing then i need to change
0: wow Um, that's pretty that's a pretty um uh, mature sentiment for an eight-year-old. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, I feel like if you read uh, into the world of self-development or self-helpy kind of stuff nowadays, like taking responsibility for your situation is an important first step to improving it, um, because or the way we react to the world is the only thing under our control. Uh, but and it, it can be really hard to to, to accept that, um, even as an adult, uh, and it's, uh, I'm just blown away that, <laughs> that an eight year old would, would come up with, <laughs> with, uh, with that kind of radical responsibility, um, radical extreme ownership as Jocko Willing would say, uh, uh, by herself.
1: I, th- thanks Jacob. <laughs> I had a, I had a lot of time to think.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and, and your and you do think a lot about things. They <laughs> do even eight year, even at eight, year, eight years old. <laughs> it's true. It's yeah. true. That hasn't changed.
1: No, that probably, that definitely has not changed. Yeah. I'm definitely an overthinker. Um, and so uh, so starting starting from that point, uh, I remember at Solana I, I showed this spreadsheet, but starting from that point, um, I had a a goal in mind. So I wanted to be I, I, I wanted to be happy actually. I think that was the goal. And I thought happiness was in honestly being popular because I was eight years old <laughs> and,
0: you know, being popular is certainly, uh, I don't think it makes someone happy, but it's a big step up from being isolated.
1: Yeah. And you know, in all the books and movies and TV shows that I read, I just knew that I didn't want to be lonely and I wanted to be happy and, uh, you know, on TV shows, uh, people who seem to be popular were, seemed to be happy. And so I made it a goal to be that person. Um, Like, and so I started setting these, like, I knew what I was afraid of. Um, I was afraid of people. And so I started setting these tiny little goals for myself so that I could conquer these fears. Um, So... Sometimes I would make it a goal um, to look at one person a day. Um, just l- I didn't even have to look at them in the eyes. I just had to look at one person.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, how did how did you keep track of these goals? Uh,
1: just mentally, I didn't even okay. I didn't really write it down. Um, it was just something that I knew I needed to do, um, or. And that in of itself, I, it probably took me about two years to feel comfortable just looking at people. Um, and then I remember developing, you know, tiny goals, like, I'll say, I'll smile at one person today. I don't think I could even say hi. Um, so I'll just smile at one person a day. Uh, and I remember probably from like 10 to 12, that still really freaked me out. If they smiled back, I wouldn't cower in fear, and then i just kind of awkwardly look away. Um and so I, I would slowly kind of build all of these things up, uh, and I remember actually a defining moment uh, when I was about 15. Uh, someone, uh, someone invited me to a church. I'd never been, I don't think I'd ever been to a church before, and it was the first time to my recollection that someone approached me and said, hi, Helen how are you? And he smiled and he was warm uh, and he was adorable. And I remember thinking, oh my God, this feels amazing. Like I remembered the warmth spreading from like my cheeks down to my body and to my fingertips. And literally all he did was say, hi, Helen, how are you? And I, I don't remember the conversation after that, but I remember thinking, I can't believe someone went out of his way to just say hi to me. And it was the highlight probably of my month that he did that for me. And so a couple of weeks later, uh, and so I, I kept going back, and a couple of weeks later, I noticed uh, another little boy, he was probably, you know, 13 at the time, and I noticed he was standing in the corner by himself. Um... At this point, I'm still really, really terrified of really talking to people. But at this point, I could engage in a conversation if people talk to me. Uh, And I remember thinking, wait, why is no one paying attention to him? Uh, I think for most of my life, I've been really sensitive to people who are socially excluded. Um, And so I remember... Internally going, oh my goodness, someone pay attention. Says, someone look at him. Someone make him feel welcome, and no one did. And this like other little voice popped up into my mind and said, "Helen, you could do it." Uh, and so I had this internal battle with um, this second wiser Helen in my head and going, "No, I can't. That's terrifying." <laughs> and then just another persistent voice going, "You see him. Talk to him." <laughs> And so uh, eventually I rehearsed what I was going to say. Uh, and I rehearsed, hi, my name is Helen. What's your name? Hi, my name is Helen. What's your name? Over and over again, because I was that nervous about messing those, that line lineup. Um, and so I eventually kind of shuffle over to him, like really, really awkwardly, uh, like stand probably awkwardly close to his face and went, hi, my name is Helen. What's your name? And I remember his reaction, Um, his name was John, and I remember seeing in him what I probably felt um, when someone approached me and said hi to me. I remember seeing him relax his shoulders, smile at me, and breathe this huge sigh of relief, and he just said, hi, my name is John, it's nice to meet you. And in that moment, I realized it might be terrifying for me to approach someone, go out of my way and say hi to a perfect stranger, but it might be even more painful and even more terrifying for someone else. And for me, I will do almost anything if I can help someone else. Um, So it was at that point that I realized, okay, I'm going to do this because it can actually make other people feel as wonderful as I probably did when someone went out of his way to welcome me.
0: It's really beautiful that you could do that for someone else, and and I think and it, it seems that like there's something about your experience of having been through isolation that lets you really empathize when you you see someone else that appears to be socially isolated. You understand more what it means to them than um, than someone else might. Like personally, I, I wouldn't understand that. It could mean so much to someone um, because I haven't had that experience of isolation. Yeah. Um, it motivates what? me to want to be more, <laughs> more kind to people that I see who are left on the outskirts of social gatherings and such.
1: Well, that makes, that makes me really happy to hear. Um, it's probably what also motivates me. Even to this day, uh, I realize I spend probably 90% of my time just kind of subconsciously, mentally scanning a room and seeing, uh, you know, who's not involved in a conversation Uh, because I'm, I still remember and like I can can still feel in my body how scary it is to kind of interrupt a group or not feel included Uh, and that's, uh, like it's a very scary and huge mental block. Um, and like nowadays, because I've spent a lot of time kind of conquering that fear. And so I would say now I'm very socially extroverted, love talking to strangers. And so the effort that it takes me to say hi to a stranger is next to none. Um, and in fact, I really enjoy it, but to someone else, it can mean the world. It can make their day.
0: So, um, I'm kind of curious if you're like, how your self-conception has changed as you've gone about this process of, by like conquering social fear, um, do you see yourself differently now? Or, I mean, how did that change kind of happen, uh, if so?
1: Could you clarify that? What do you like mean Do, do you self-perception? St- do you
0: still think of yourself as being... Uh, as having this fear or... Um, and you're just managing it better? Or do you see yourself mm-hmm. as being more... Um, maybe socially of higher value and you just uh, move about um, in a very easy way. You don't think very much about social fears or uh, like, for example, my self-conception around uh, social situations is something like, I feel pretty comfortable in most social situations, but I recognize the fact that I have found my way into a, um, Sort of an environment where I do fit in very well, so that makes it easy. Uh, It hasn't always been that way. Um, In fact, I I think that's something that's kind of happened for me really in the last last few years. But if I'm in a mixed in mixed company, I still with people I don't share that many cultural values with. I still feel like I think pretty okay, Um, and it's only sort of exceptional situations. Where like I'm talking to a stranger or something that I still feel that social anxiety. Like if I see someone that is interesting to me in a coffee shop and I am and I am making a first step to start a conversation, like that can be kind of terrifying. But your average sort of talking to people at parties and stuff, I I kind of feel I feel like 60th percentile socially confident. You know, I'm like kind of doing all right. Mm. Um, that's kind of my Self-conception around social fear. I don't know how you think about yourself now. Like, mm. where, where do you think you are now?
1: Yeah, um, I I would say I have very little, probably very little social fear. Um, probably, I wouldn't say next to none. Um, but I remember my social fear um, as a child and when I was younger, came from fear of judgment. What will people think of me? Oh no, will people not like me? Um, what if they think I'm dumb or not funny or not interesting, um, et cetera, et cetera. And that's that's where my, or what if I'm not good enough? Um, what if I'm not worthy? And that's where a lot of my social anxiety came from. And I think now it's, I approach social interactions and I approach people very, very differently. Um, I think more specifically, it's not about me. Um, so when I approach a stranger, um, whether at a party or at a coffee shop, or um, I you know, I met one of my best friends just on literally on the street walking. Mm-hmm. I saw her walking on the street, and I struck up a conversation with her. Um, it's out of curiosity, and it's in a conversation. I'm not thinking about impressing someone, or I'm not thinking about... Uh, you know, how can I be cooler to this person or, um, you know, how can, you know, how can I make them like me, Um, which is what I did when I was much younger. And that's what brought on a lot of social anxiety. I think nowadays it's my approach in every social interaction. Like even when I'm having a conversation, I'm thinking about how can I make you feel seen? Um, how can I help you feel heard? Uh, how can I just help you feel comfortable like you can relax and that and how can I help you know that I'm not here to judge you? Um, I'm just here to like love and support you even we' strangers um, because I know even with your family or with your friends, sometimes it's just hard to be heard um, or say what you want to say without fear of you know being judged. So, I like to think in maybe some of the questions that I ask or um, the way that I ask them, uh, that I'm approaching a new person or a close friend with warmth and care. And for me, when I talk to people, it's really, I think about just a few things, which is how can I help you? Um, How can I make you happier? Uh, And... I guess the third thing is, is there anything I can do for you? But that's probably close, closely tied to number one. Um, or if you don't need anything, just in this moment, in this brief interaction, um, maybe I'll never see you again, is, did I make your day a little bit better? Um, so, this, yeah.
0: I'm just noticing that there seems to be like uh, maybe a connection between ego and fear. And like the more ego you have, like the, Maybe the more fragile, in, in, more ego you're bringing to an interaction, like the more you want uh, out of the other person as far as the, them, their judgments of you, like the more uncertain you are about that. And, and that creates anxiety and fear and, and the things that you're talking about or the goals that you have for a conversation are, aren't so you focus. So um, there is maybe less surface area for fear. That's a
1: that's a pretty interesting observation. I like it. (laughs) Uh, I'd also say that that's probably why uh, my my friends always call me a goofball, and it's probably because I in the past I used to think a lot about um, you know how can I seem more impressive or you know how can I seem really smart. That seemed really important to me in the past, and nowadays it. Honestly, I it doesn't really matter because I also know that connection doesn't happen through um, seeing valuing someone else as significant. Um, connection happens through vulnerability, and so I think I probably overcorrect in displaying vulnerability and goofiness and silliness. Uh, because at least for me, when I meet someone, I like I don't really care if you're super super impressive. I care about. Um, can we just laugh together? Can we be weird together? Can we roll around on the floor and blow bubbles and make goofy faces at each other? Because to be honest, at the end of my life, um, I don't really care if I have an extra award or an extra company or um, like an extra plaque on the side of a building. Uh, I just care. Like, did I make people feel loved? Did uh, did I help... Uh, create less suffering and less isolation in the world by building communities, um, by creating safe spaces where people could just be themselves and didn't have to pretend to be someone else, pretend to be more... Prestigious or significant, or like they had more status. Um, uh, the impression I had, was like, hello, my name is helen I am a very important person, you see. <laughs> don't you like me more now? like Don't you want to be friends with me? Like,
0: well, now that you speak in that accent, <laughs> I, I immediately thought that you're much more prestigious than than you were before.
1: <laughs> Perfect. That was the intention. <laughs> um,
0: but but I'm afraid I, I might be underdressed all of a sudden. Um,
1: um, and, uh, given that this is a podcast, I'd like to point out that I have a stuffed Pikachu in my lap. You
0: do have a stuffed Pikachu <laughs> in your lap. And,
1: uh, and you have a stuffed golden retriever stuffed on golden your retriever.
0: lap. Yes. <laughs> um, for the folks at home, we, we have our, our, our we're being quite silly, <laughs> too silly. No, there's no such thing as too silly. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of curious that so you, you talked about like vulnerability and like play as being important ways to connect with people. Um, Do you think that those are connected at all?
1: Absolutely. Um, So uh, Tony Robbins actually has um, this list of six human needs, and I'll just talk about two of them. There's a need for significance, and there's a need for connection. And these are basic human needs and desires. And the ironic thing is those two are basically antitheses of each other. Um, And so I, I can share a little story of how I figured it out. Um, so I mentioned that when I was a kid, I had this dream of being like, super popular and, you know, walking to a room and everyone knows my name. And so I worked really hard on that. You know, I read Dale Carnegie at probably age 10 and a lot of the books and articles and TV shows, I would constantly imitate characters. Um, I also minored in dramatic arts and I did a lot of theater. And so a lot of my like subconscious or maybe even conscious effort was, how can I be more likable? Um, And so when I, by the time I got to college, I would say I was fairly, uh, I was fairly sociable. Um, I'd like to, dare I say it, kind of funny. And so I, I feel like I had a lot of friends in college and I, in retrospect, you know, I felt like I was pretty well liked. But the thing is, I was not vulnerable whatsoever. Um, I was that person that you saw at a party and said like, Hey, Helen's here. And and then everyone would go, Hey, Helen, how's it going? And I probably met these people like for two minutes, one time at, you know, one social gathering out on a lawn somewhere. Uh, And I was able to maybe tell a joke or be funny that people still remember my name. And the thing I realized when I was in college, you know, after going to a lot of social gatherings, but never being vulnerable, um, I never really told my story. I was very good at deflecting questions. If they asked me, Helen, tell me about you, I would, I would say something like, wait no you didn't tell like finish your story i'd love to learn more about you know your childhood i'd love to learn more about you know your struggles or etc ex- etc cetera, et cetera. um because one i didn't i hadn't really faced my own past and my own history and two uh I loved being that shiny person. I loved being, you know, happy, funny Helen. Um, and I didn't want to s- want people to see me as anything but. Um, and as time went on, I th- probably by junior or senior year of college, I realized I could be in a room of like 100 people who knew my name, uh, really liked me, and I just felt completely and utterly alone. Um wow. And I remember going through uh, a lot of anxiety and depression when I was in college. And it's because there is a huge difference between being liked and feeling connected. Uh, And so that dream that I had uh, when I was younger, I felt like I had reached that dream. Uh, Like I was that person that I saw in TV shows and it did not give me the happiness that I wanted. but I didn't. I didn't know what would. Um, I just remember feeling like this is not the life that I thought I wanted. I was at my dream college. Um, I was living the the life that I always imagined. You know, when I was on TV, um, and it was just it was not living up to what I thought it should be. And it was only until it was. One of the best life decisions I've ever made was uh, becoming a peer counselor um, when I was in college, and I think it introduced me to what it was like to hold other people in true vulnerability. Um, it helped me be a much better listener. Uh, it helped me listen without giving advice. And after that, I realized um, that people felt inordinately Connected to me even though I and I didn't feel connected to them and it took me several years to realize Connection comes from sharing vulnerabilities Um, Because now as a community organizer and someone who studies interpersonal dynamics a lot um, connection doesn't come from sharing the good things in life so if a friend tells, if someone tells me, you know, an acquaintance tells me, hey, I just got this promotion, or hey, I just met Obama, or, you know, uh, I did all these very impressive things, um, I'm happy for you, and I'm, I'm genuinely so grateful that you have that opportunity. But if I'm being truly honest, it doesn't make me feel closer to you. Um, what makes me feel closer to a person is someone sharing what's hard for them, what's painful for them. Um, what struggles are happening? Um, what's raw, um, underneath? Because if I'm looking at it like, like an onion, uh, if we're just showing our shiny parts, um, it, it actually just feels like we're bouncing off each other. But if we're revealing what's raw underneath, um, One, it gives me permission to do the same or vice versa, Um, to actually share, this is what's going on for me. And that's what's bonding. Um, Seeing someone for who they truly are, the good and the bad, um, I won't even say bad, just seeing someone for all their multifaceted selves instead of just the shiny parts makes me feel much more bonded to someone. Um, because one, it shows that they trust me; they're trusting me with information that they wouldn't readily broadcast everywhere else. Um, two, it feels special. Um, I this sounds so cheesy, but I'm true. I'm like I'm so honored and feel special and like delighted when someone chooses to share. Like Helen, this is what's really going on for me. Because three, my love language and what makes me feel closer to someone is when they elicit compassion for me and someone sharing what's hard for them, like elicits compassion for me. And that's what makes me feel closer to someone, being able to take care of them, being able to hold them. And maybe knowing that maybe I helped you, maybe I, in this moment, um, help you just feel a little bit better that to me is bonding and that is how I've made some of my best friends um, and vice versa And I think another story is
0: just uh, it, yeah. it feel it, it does I, I, I relate to what you're saying um, a lot and it feels to me like when someone trusts me by opening up about something that's difficult for them um, it almost puts them in like a different category of person in my brain, like maybe it's a category that's like more family or more in group. It's like, Oh, now there, there is a sense of relaxation around them and, um, and reciprocal vulnerability is then returning the trust. And yeah, now we're, now we're close. Like now, now we are sort of um, joint voyagers on this, <laughs> on this, uh, on this journey of life where, Um, if we're only, if we're, if we're still in this stage where we're like trying to impress each other, then, then it kind of feels more anonymous because that's what I do for like my boss or for someone that a job I want to get or to try to sell myself in the marketplace. Like it's, it's not a, a close connection if I'm only trying to impress you. Uh, so, um, I mean, maybe there's a way that like you you mentioned earlier that there's like this trade-off between uh, vulnerability or connection and um, striving for... Significance. Significance. Uh, And I think what some people are exploring, and this is super risky, I don't know if it's going to work, but it's the, the idea that connection can help you achieve significance like through vulnerability or that seems to be like the project that that Brene Brown is kind of pushing she's talking about how vulnerability even in a public arena even where it's scary can actually help you connect more with people and then actually um, increase your 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 capability to get what you want Um, but that that seems to be the it's still kind of scary to pursue.
1: It's really scary. I'm. I'm actually going to add a, a little bit of a nuance to that.
0: Uh,
1: I also uh, geek. out. I studied psych, and so I geek out a, a lot about organizational behavior. Um, so my uh, my little add-on to that is um, vulnerability is actually not always good. Um, mm-hmm. It can definitely bite you in the butt. Uh, so
0: that's a great topic. Can we talk, <laughs> can we talk about that? Because vulnerability has been. I think on the rise. The stock of vulnerability <laughs> yes. has been on the rise, like since Brene Brown's TED Talk, yes. at least if not before. Uh, <laughs> so let's talk about how um, vulnerability is not always a good thing.
1: So, for example, um, I see vulnerability as a, like as an amplifier. Um, so, for example, if I already have uh, positive feelings about someone, it's going to amplify how much I like them. Uh, if I have Negative feelings about someone, depending on what you're sharing, it might actually amplify those feelings. So there's this thing. Um, I'll look it up later. There is an effect. Uh, so this is a. Uh, I'm going to share a technique that uh, you know sometimes FBI interrogators or psychologists use. Um, and in order to be likable, for example, uh, they recommend that you establish respect first. And then display a show of vulnerability. So they did this experiment where um, you know you walk into a psychologist's office and uh, you know they have all of these diplomas and badges on the wall, and it's done uh, that way for a reason. It's so that they seem credible, they seem smart, you respect them in their field, um, and so once you have that credibility and respect. Then in the experiments, they showed the psychologist, you know, drop just dropping a pen. Uh, and it's just in that one act uh, that makes the psychologist more likable. Um, because if I respect you, that's great. It doesn't mean that I like you. And so what makes me like you or trust you is that show of human fallibility. Uh, it's like, oh, you're really smart, but you're just like me. I drop pens too. <laughs> And it's the uh, it's the same way that, you know, CEO or uh, maybe, you know, president uh, would say like, obviously, they're really smart. And so if they already have and command the respect. They actually don't need to go out of their way to constantly prove I am so impressive, like I am perfect all of the time. You'll notice the most charismatic and likable leaders will show vulnerability through humor. Humor is amazingly effective at that. So sometimes they'll, uh, you know, joke about themselves, like ha ha, like uh, you know I might be a great uh, and very eloquent speaker, but. Uh, you know, at home, my kids always make fun of me for my dad jokes um, or, um, you know, you. Um, I, I
0: remember like Bill Clinton playing, I think he, when he was a candidate still, he played the saxophone on, mm-hmm. on one of the late night shows and made a joke about not inhaling uh, in, in college uh, when people asked him if he had done marijuana. And so uh, there was some way that like he, like that was one way that he established his his likability, because, uh, I mean, both those things are taking risks. I mean, humor is a risk, right? Yeah. Um, and because when you make a joke, I mean, it could just not work. <laughs> I mean, humor is a little <laughs> bit mysterious. Uh, so, so being willing to joke shows that you aren't so fragile in your sense of uh, importance or respect that you're not willing to take some risk.
1: Yeah, and we have a really hard time liking or trusting people who take themselves very seriously, for example. And so, uh, maybe it was last year or two years ago, I'm terribly not on top of pop culture, but I remember Jennifer Lawrence was blowing up because, you know, she tripped during an award ceremony and she'll make really, really funny faces and just kind of goof off. And it's because we know that she's impressive. She's a great actress. Um, but the fact that, uh, She seemed real, um, unfiltered, uncensored. That makes the audience go, (sighs) like, breathe a sigh of relief and say, oh, she's just like us. Like, she, like, messes up. She trips. Um, um, She's weird, like me. Because for most, I would dare to say that most human beings, if not all, always feel the sense of, like, insecurity, like, oh, maybe I'm just the weird one. Or, um, And so for someone else outside of ourselves um, to display the vulnerability of, I'm weird too, look at me frolicking, it gives us permission to relax. It gives us permission to be our weird selves. Um, and...
0: It normalizes weirdness.
1: Exactly. Because everyone kind of is oxymoronic. weird. Every, yeah. <laughs> everyone is weird. I, <laughs> I like to say that the older we get, the weirder we get. And um, that's actually not true. Um, the older we get, basically, the less we care about what other people think of us. And I think if we just... Or maybe
0: the less afraid we are about what other people think think e- of us.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes I think, what if we just started out this way? Um, What if we just didn't judge people as much? Um, What if we could just be free to do what we wanted um, and pursue the things that we were passionate about um, and have the conversations that we wanted to have? Um, One of the things I think a lot about is um, there's this book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying, and I, I may misquote this, but I remember, I think number one, the number one regret was, I wish I had lived a life true to me and not to other people's expectations. Um, and I think that resonates with a lot of people. Um, I think we spend so much time, so much of our lives trying to live up to other people's expectations. Uh, Typically, primarily our parents and then to our peers. Um, so like, I should be successful in this way. Let me do this very, very fancy, schmancy job. And then a couple of years later realize, well, this makes me really unhappy. And everyone knows that this is miserable, but it seems to give me credibility to do the thing that I want. Um, and for most people, it takes them quite a few years to find that um if they're lucky enough to
0: it seems just uh risky to be more authentically weird uh because culture and personality is like intertwined in the marketplace and it seems like you might earn more money or have a more stable stream of income if you uh act in a way that's like more predictable for other people um which isn't always true. Like sometimes a little bit of deviance is delightful and, and, and people like that and value that. Um, and sometimes it's a, a lot of deviance is super delightful and, <laughs> and, and those people get rocketed to the top. But um, but sometimes it's not. And uh, so, so it seems like there's some amount of like physical vulnerability that holds people back from maybe more authentic expressions of their personality
1: yeah and i'll i'll also add that um, i won't say that for example working a stable job is bad in fact i think it's really great especially um, i know that i admit for myself um, the things that i love and the things that i don't love i really value stability um probably because as someone uh I remember not having a lot in my childhood. like, And the message that I always got from my parents was, Helen, it really sucks being poor. And so that's very deeply ingrained in me. Uh, and so, you know, I remember as a kid or for most of my life thinking, oh man, I would love to be a writer or an artist. Um, but there's a, a stronger voice saying, um, I really value stability. I really value being able to provide for my family and being able to provide for my parents because it's my turn to take care of them because they sacrificed their entire lives for me. And so if I think about that quote, again, um, I wish I had lived a life true to me and not to other people's expectations. Um, What's true to me is being able to take care of my family. Um, And what's true to me is still, uh, is probably, you know, not working for an oil company, um, but we'll, we'll scratch off the
0: oil coming. Yeah.
1: Oil company. <laughs> um, but uh, for me, what's true to me is making sure that I do good and still providing for my family.
0: Yeah. So it, it, it's not a simple formula. You still have to balance all these different values that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe it's a bit of a guiding star. Um, I want to switch topics because have no idea what time it is, and I want to get around to community yeah. building because you have built a community um, built around a lot of these values that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, at one, Sal- one salon, is a community dedicated to I would say like connection and play, and um, and also just learning uh, and spreading spreading ideas. Um, and you're currently the, the director of that and one of the people that makes makes it happen uh, i'd like to know about your experience like putting that together and um like what yeah maybe you could just tell me a little bit about about what it's like to run that and how you and why you've chosen to make it the way it is
1: i love that um so once salon is a community that meets every single tuesday um and it's similar to TED Talks. It's kind of like TED Talks with friends. Um, but instead of being completely lecture-based, uh, it's experience-based. Um, so it's a place where we learn new things every week. There's a different theme uh, every single week. Uh, where it's a place where you come, come meet new people. And the most important thing for me is a place where you can have awesome conversations. Uh, so the explicit rule in Once Alone is no small talk. So uh, we explicitly encourage um, saloners to not ask, what do you do? Where are you from? Uh, how's the weather <laughs> uh, where you're from? Uh, because that's, uh, that's a habit uh, that de- that's derived from the standard social script that we've been passed along. And it's actually distancing for when you're trying to establish intimacy and connection between people. Um, because... If I'm genuinely not interested in what you do for a living, right off the bat, right off the bat, in the first five seconds, I'm already distanced from you. I'm already disconnected from our conversation. And so I explicitly encourage people to ask things that you're genuinely curious about. What do you actually want to know um, about the person standing next to you? Um, maybe maybe it's what are you passionate about? Um, what has been exciting for you lately? what have you been thinking about lately? And those are also the same questions that I ask my friends, uh, very often when I see them, because that's what I want to know.
0: Some of those can be kind of scary questions.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and so I also say, like, you know what, it's, you can answer however you'd like. I would never pressure you and saying, Jacob, now I want to know your deepest pain. Tell
0: me now. Uh, It's an easy, that's an easy one to answer at the moment.
1: (laughs) That's true. That's true. I
0: I want to have a a breakup podcast, but, uh, (laughs) you know, the time hasn't come for it yet.
1: (laughs) I'm sure it'll be valuable to a lot of different people. I hope so. Uh,
0: There's a, there's like sort of a, this is kind of going back to an earlier part of the conversation, but I worry, I do have like this anxiety around what they call oversharing and, um, and like what, to what extent is my vulnerability helpful and to what extent am I like showing up as maybe like, like, one could interpret vulnerability as like asking for pity or in these less kind ways. And when I've talked about, um, the emotional pain I've been going through in the last four months or so on Facebook, for example, a couple of my more like masculine friends have messaged me to be like, bro, what are you doing? Like, like, take that shit down, like hit the gym, post pictures of yourself with other girls. So, <laughs> or something, you know, um, and, uh, which, you know, I'm not following that script, but there is something I worry about, like, um, like how much, how, like, is there some part of my personal life, even if it's like very rich and meaningful to me and I'm learning so much about myself and other people and the world, uh, through this process that is very painful to me um, like, is there some of that that I should withhold or that I shouldn't talk about? Is there some of that that should be private? Mm. Um, and, uh, and I know we have cultural scripts for all of this, which is, um, something like the stiff upper lip. Um, like you, you, you go to your work, you, you keep all the pain inside and you just kind of, kind of step it down and you try to be easy for other people to engage with. But, um, when I have been open on the other hand, like like there's been this wave of relief from other people like coming at me and gratitude people telling me that they're so happy that I'm talking about these difficult things so I'm trying to figure out for myself like what's the right degree of sharing and I'm terrified of or I will be terrified if I do that that breakup podcast and talking about what I've learned Um, like I don't want to talk about my personal details too much it only the amount that that is necessary out of respect for my former partner, but, but I've learned a lot and uh, I think it would be really useful for some people. This has been a really big <laughs> tension, <tangent, tangent. laughs>
1: no but,
0: uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Like oversharing I, versus like,
1: I do, okay. I do. Um, what, what is that word? It makes me, it makes me think of two things. Um, the first thing is when I think of sharing vulnerabilities and, uh, what i could comment on is how i approach it and that's good so i've gradually um, almost trained myself to share vulnerabilities because i used to be way on the other end where i didn't share anything and i'm actually going to throw in a, <laughs> probably like a business school term here where uh it's what's um it's a philosophy between like managers and their direct reports, uh, in that, uh, not throwing like the monkey on someone else's back. And so when I share vulnerabilities, for example, if I'm going through, uh, a really, really hard time. The, the fine line that I try not to cross is throwing my monkey onto someone else's back, which is um, forcing someone else to have pity on me or like they have to do something. So if I'm sharing and then my friend automatically has the face of, oh no, what can I do for you? Um, too often, it feels like I'm making my problem their problem. And that's what I don't want to do. And so when I share, um, I actually share like, Hey, this is what I'm going through. This is what I'm doing about it. Um, like I know I'm like, I know I'm sad now. I also know that I'll be okay and that I can handle it. This is how I'm feeling now. Um, if you'd like, if, you know, sometimes it's, you know, if you'd like, I'd love, like I'd love a hug or I'd love for you, you know, I'm not feeling great about myself. And so I think I just need, uh, Someone right now to like tell me why you care about me, um, and I don't make those demands or those requ- I'll say requests that often because I do think of a relationship like a bank. You know, I try to put in depo- like almost friendship deposits a lot more than I take out, um, and and the second thing that it made me think of was you mentioned that a lot of your friends were grateful, um, that you shared and it's because you're having the courage to share something that most people don't have the courage to share. And that's really, really welcome because chances are the people who responded to you, if they break up with someone, you might be the first person they call, um, because they know that you were very open about it and you've been through the same thing. And so it gives them a lifeline, uh, to reach out when they're feeling alone. Um, I'll
0: tell you the, the the post that I got the most positive response to um, was I just posted on Facebook that I was going through a very emotionally difficult time. And was there anyone out there that I could call uh, if I needed to? Mm-hmm. And maybe like 75 people posted below that saying that I could call them. Some of whom I haven't talked to, hadn't talked to in, in years, um, and it made me feel really good to know that um, so many people cared about me. Even uh, people that I did remember fondly, but you know, if you haven't talked to someone for a few years, you're like, uh, I'm not sure how that person feels about me, and if I should contact them. And they were just like, sure, like please call me, and um, and I ended up taking up uh, you know probably six or eight people up on their offers and, and have called people over. The last few months, but that example, some people had commented to me in person that they were very inspired by that example to like just ask for the the help that they wanted and to not be alone in going through uh, some of the most difficult parts of life, um, and uh, yeah, that that made me feel it felt good to do that,
1: and it makes. It makes me really happy to know that you did that. Um, it reminds me of, again, that's where, that's how communities actually form. That is how connection is formed. Uh, someone saying, hey, I need help, will you help me? And someone being given that gift of, yes, I would be so glad to help you. Um, it reminds me of, so for my birthday last year, um, I held a, a weekend getaway uh, for my friends. And on, on that Friday evening, uh, <laughs> I sat everyone down in a circle, and we played this uh, authentic relating game. Uh, it was super simple, where um, every single person in the circle just posed the group a question. And we're pretty tight-knit, so everyone knows each other fairly well. And people asked you know, things like, what do you think of me and my boyfriend? Or what do you think are my blind spots that I should know about? Or how do you think I will change in this next year? And uh, everyone got really, really honest answers. Um, but the the question that I asked the group was, when did you feel most disconnected from me? And conversely, when did you feel most connected to me? And my, my friend's answers have actually changed my life. It just completely... I think reframed, um, how I went about the world. And my friends, uh, one friend said, Helen, I feel most disconnected from you when you're being polite and when you're trying to be friendly or when you're being too happy. And the example he gave was, um, uh, two years ago, I had surgery and I was in bed for about six weeks and he came to visit me. Uh, and asked me, "Helen, how how can I help you?" And I and I said something like I was in bed and I was probably in pain and I said, "Oh no, no, no. I'm like Daniel, I'm just so happy that you're here. Like don't worry about it." And he said he felt extremely disconnected from me at that very moment because and he felt really frustrated with me actually because he was he came all this way to help me and I wasn't allowing him to help. He said uh, he would call me out when I would, you know, get get out of bed to get my own glass of water. And he said, like, Helen, are you kidding me? Um, why won't you let me help you? Um, and conversely, he said uh, he felt most connected to me when I was being honest and raw and not trying to pretend like everything was OK. But I was um, but I was just sad. And, you know, I, I remember crying in front of him and he said like I have never felt more connected to you as I did then Um, because you show me a side of yourself that one you don't show everyone and two you let me help you um, because you helped me in a lot of ways and this was the first time that I could help you Um, and I remember another friend said I remember over the span of a weekend at Ephemeral, actually, uh, we didn't know each other super, super well. This was Valerie. And she, I was hungry and tired and hot, and I didn't know how to swim, so I couldn't get to clothing or food. And she asked me, Helen, can I get you anything? And I said, no, 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 don't worry about me. No, it's totally fine. And she looked at me again and said, Helen when you let me help you, I feel closer to you and I feel more loved. Um, And I still said, no, 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 it's okay, it's okay. And at that moment, she said, Helen, when you don't let me help you, when I know that you need help, um, it makes me physically recoil. It makes me physically feel more disconnected and distant from you. It feels like you're pushing me away. Um, It feels like you don't trust me. And so throughout that weekend, throughout the four days, um, she would, every time she saw me, she would say, Helen, how can I help you? Remember, when you let me help you, I feel closer to you. Mm. Uh, And it probably took her saying that about 80 times for me to start saying, hey, Valerie, do you have any water? Because I was literally dying of thirst. Yeah. Uh, and she said she felt most connected to me when um, it was actually after a breakup. And she asked me, "Hey Helen, how are you doing?" And I said, "No, I'm I'm great. Um, he's like he's wonderful, and like we'll like we'll be great friends. Um, and I think the world of him." And she looked at me in the eyes and said. Bullshit. <laughs> and for the next 30 minutes, she pulled me aside and we just scram into the abyss. Um, did, you, did I say scram? Screamed? Yeah,
0: I got it. <laughs> um, I think there's, there's some way that, man, when it comes to breakups especially, um, people really want it to be okay. Like they want themselves to be okay and, and they want it to... They want to like this idea that like we're just going to be friends and some people maybe pull it off. Maybe I think they have a lot of emotions to process though, before they can pull off that. Everything's okay. We're we're just friends. We used to be, uh, you know, romantically connected, but now we're taking a step back. That's yeah. That, that certainly didn't seem to be like even in the cards for, for me. Like I was like, how could that happen when all these emotions are going on? Um, but I have noticed a similar thing about people feel really good when you let them do something for you. Like there's a way that I think most of my really close friendships were cemented when one of us asked the other person for help. It was um, like my good friend Ted. Uh, I think we went from good friends to great friends when like he offered to help me move all of my possessions out of my ex's house where where i was staying so i wouldn't have to do it alone um and i'm like okay now suddenly i'm listing him as my emergency contact on my medical forms because i'm like okay like that is a just a deeper level of of trust and um i noticed this before even when not to tell my own story after you just told such a great story but The the way that that I learned this is I noticed that if I asked strangers for directions, they loved it. Like, you can make someone's day if they live in a town and you're, like, there for the first time just asking someone for directions. Like, they get so into it. Like, sometimes too into it. Because, like, you got the gist of it. But they really want you to know, like, all the little landmarks and stuff. And it's something about, like, letting someone be helpful is actually, like, a gift to them. And... It's changed the way I, I've thought about like asking for what I want um, in the world because a lot of times the person, I used to think like, oh, it's kind of a burden and they might say no. But now I kind of think they might actually like it. Like if I'm asking even like like a prestigious person in my field to talk with me about something, like if they're not like super celebrities in, in the world at large, a lot of times they they're like thrilled to have someone asking them about um, relevant things to their interest uh and um and i think when it comes to you know the really tough parts of life like that's like that's a, a heightened version of that like people really like to give
1: yeah um one I think, but what's what's mm-hmm. bothering me mm-hmm.
0: is that we talked about the emotional bank model of friendship too Mm -hmm. that seems to have some tension with this idea that people love to give and i wonder if we can resolve that
1: oh i absolutely think there is an emotional bank um because i've definitely been on on the other end of people asking for a lot and being in one-sided relationships where and i i love giving and um, I typically don't think uh, of my own well-being in that respect, and I think when I know someone who's constantly asking for, I think, um, hmm, what's that word? Uh, my time and energy and emotional capacity, and I'm not necessarily getting, th- um, receiving care and love in return. Um, then it becomes exhausting then it doesn't feel like a relationship anymore Um, Mm -hmm. so i absolutely think there is
0: has to be two-sided maybe yeah
1: it absolutely has to be two-sided and so um, someone can withdraw from that bank um but ideally i would be able to do that as well
0: it's hard to see someone as like a friend or an equal if uh, they always need things from you and you never
1: give return. need
0: anything from them yeah yeah okay (laughs) i feel like we never talked about community building i feel like we almost did
1: i would love to chat about community building
0: yeah i i i've i would love to talk about community building (laughs) (laughs) how does one build community so i mean one salon seems super healthy right like every tuesday um there's a big crowd um it's uh, a lot of regulars, some new people. Uh, the culture has, I've, I've gone myself maybe five or six times over two years. And, uh, and it's great. Uh, and the reason I have come less frequently is because San Francisco just has so many things to do. <laughs> of course. Uh, but even in the time that I've been going, it's uh, like the culture has stayed pretty much the same, pretty high quality pretty consistent and it's like this little oasis of connection and I think relaxation and, um, and fun in, in a city that's, you know, can be a little fast paced, can be a little serious at times. Uh, how do you do it?
1: Yeah. Um, so I can definitely walk you through the things that we do at Salon and everything is uh, done honestly with a very specific intention and purpose. Uh, And so I I like to call it experience design. I love designing special experiences and creating special spaces for people. And so when I design an experience, I think of the emotional arc of the evening. Um, And I think a lot about um, how will people feel and what will people think when they walk out the door? What do I want people to leave with? And I'd love for people to leave with... um, this excitement of forming a a new connection of wow I just met this awesome person or these awesome people today and we had these really great conversations that gave me a new perspective on life and I wow that was really fun like I played improv games and it was really weird and goofy and silly Um, and I got to get out of uh, get out of my head Um, and I'd love for them to walk away with Wow, I never thought about this, but now I'm really excited to learn more. And so, those are the three things that I'd love to design tours when, um, when you know, inviting speaker and working with the speaker to create this experience. So when people walk in, you know, we always greet them like, "Hey, like, welcome to Salon," uh, and we really want to acknowledge um, that you that you came to Salon yeah. because. Of, you know all the different things that you could have done on a Tuesday night. You could be at home watching Netflix. You could be uh, dancing. You could be doing X, Y, Z. Um, you could be meeting up with your friends. You came to salon, and that that makes me really happy. Um, at seven thirty, we start with improv games and salon introductions and uh, facilitated facilitated questions. And in that half an hour, it's designed to you know, kind of shake off the day, you know, you're just coming from work. And so we're creating the space to get everyone really, really silly, um, get really, really weird, and uh, meet different people. So I specifically instruct people to um, go approach someone new and ask them this question. And it's typically uh, a question that's related to the theme of the evening. Uh, So last week, uh, it was about Writing our past, present, and future lives. So the question was you know, when you're at your best, uh, what are you like? Um, And so at eight o'clock, we typically. um,
0: I just want to say, I wish I came last week. That sounds really interesting.
1: (laughs) Uh, Next week is on deconstructing gender. Oh, wow. I'm really excited about next week's.
0: Will there be makeup? There will be. Wonderful. Yes.
1: And um,
0: for participatory, it's deconstructing a totally,
1: gender. totally optional. Um, and so salon is very uh, participation optional. Um, everything is consent-based. Um, but the one thing that I will highlight is um, salon's not always easy. Uh, when I think of activities that are like green, yellow, red, green being super, super easy, it's things that you've done before. Red is, whoa, I don't want to go there. Um, salon's designed to be in that yellow space. It's designed to push you outside of your comfort zone um, because a lot of it is about moving your body, talking to strangers about potentially deep or vulnerable topics. Um, it's an experience, but the people who love salon come because they're really open, they're curious, um, and they're really focused on personal growth. They're really focused on how can I be a better human being? Um, and in order to do that, you um, that involves a lot of sometimes like doing things that are outside of the comfort zone. Um, I might be a little biased because Mm. I'm all about conquering fear.
0: I'm, I love yellow zone activities, but (laughs) but I think my bias is to get a little bit closer to that red. Like I want, Mm. I want orange zone, you know, like uh, Mm. uh, a little bit of a, interpersonal adrenaline junkie (laughs) Uh,
1: I'm I'm probably the same way but I also understand that you know I know that if I was just starting out um, it'd be really scary to talk to a stranger about things that are personal and so um, hopefully we hold a a good enough yellow zone space where you can answer to your heart's content Um, so what do you for example the question what have you been thinking about lately you can answer like thousands of different ways Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I like that question uh, and what, I think what's unique about Salon is that um, it's designed to be an experience um, that connects you to as many different people as possible so we ask that you switch partners there's always paired exercises or group exercises um, because our intention um, is to help you feel closer to someone in the group Um, is to help you develop a connection that you may not necessarily be able to do, um, at work or on the streets or in your existing friend groups. Um, so there is a theme for every evening, but the point of salon is that it's a community. It's that this can be your tribe. Um, these can be your people. These are people who are generous and open-minded and curious, um, love learning, love exploring, um, and love authentic conversations. Like want to like explicitly connect with other human beings.
0: Two two thoughts. Mm-hmm. One thing I've noticed from salon and other activities that I've done is the, the more you do, you go to these special places where connection is made easier. Like the the easier it is to have these kind of connections in other places too. So um, I very much appreciate that. I think it's uh, I think like formula, forming connections with people is actually a skill that you build over time. Um, and Salon's a great place to, to start. Uh, my and A question that popped into mind while I heard you describing this is and when you're talking about like these generous, kind, um, r- reflective, and and, and peop- people, people at Salon, I, I, I agree, I, I like the tribe quite a bit. It's how do you keep it that way? Like how do you... How how do you not suffer from eternal September, where you build something good and it gets so popular that um, that it kind of loses its goodness as as it gets diluted?
1: Yeah. Um, so one of the things that uh, we very consciously monitor are numbers at the events. For example, uh, one of the things that we've noticed is that we don't market. So everything is through word of mouth. Uh, You typically only hear about Salon if you know someone in Salon.
0: Sorry about the podcast. (laughs) I don't don't have a very big audience yet. That's okay. (laughs) Um,
1: Well, we did notice that, uh, for example, there was one uh, where like 80 to 90 people came. And while while I was really happy that um, so many people were so excited about Salon, it is really hard to maintain the intimacy and connection that forms when the group is only maybe about 30 to 40. Uh, and so one of the things that we've consciously actually monitored is when to push out the events. Um, and that's how we monitor um, uh, like how many people will actually come. And we have a pretty good, I think, gut sense of uh, how many people will come on, depending on what day we push the event out and what the topic is. Um, and another way is, I mean, you've noticed as well, Salon does have a very specific culture. And so uh, I've noticed that uh, people who, the the regulars, I'll say, who keep coming back, love the culture and love what it stands for. Um, I think one of the things that we explicitly try to have is this culture of generosity, um, of open-mindedness. And, and that's displayed in when we have regulars, uh, when we have people who come to salon all the time, they know the culture, they know the gist. So they know to not ask people, um, you know, what do you do? They know to ask questions like, Hey, like, I'm really curious, uh, about, um, you know, what you've been excited about lately and having, um, having at least 50%, um, regulars keeps the culture alive when the group blows up um, for example if there's 90 people and 70 people of uh, of those people are new it's really difficult to keep the salon culture going um,
0: this is a problem that i know uh, many every group uh, struggles with uh, i know burning man for example a lot of people complain that it's not as good as it was and it, it's almost become a trope at this point but but the organization they uh, they earmark a certain amount of tickets for the regulars, the the old timers, the people mm-hmm. that come year after year and bring uh, bring the make the experience what it is. Um, and uh, so the organization right now is targeting uh, about thirty percent of tickets to to new people every year, um, and then the rest to more established burners. Um, and like, that's probably very self conscious on, on their part. Uh, just noticing, it's a very common mm-hmm. problem. Like, how do you how do you keep that culture going?
1: Yeah, and so uh, th- that percentage actually uh, seems to be a really, really good baseline. Fifty um, percent regulars is actually uh, very much on the on the low end. So I would actually say seventy percent regulars, thirty percent new, is a pretty good um, divide.
0: What would you count someone? like me, like an occasional area
1: <laughs> somewhere in that, uh, somewhere in that middle percent. But for example, you're very familiar with the culture. Yeah. Um, it's very, um, like for example, nonviolent communication based. Uh, we, uh, we emphasize the way we communicate, uh, a lot as well, um, to maintain, uh, a safe space, uh, a space of, uh, non judgment, a uh, place of openness, um, so I think you're fine, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: yeah, there's some something about when you get tech people, and salon isn't just tech people, but it's in, you know, it's in it's in um, it's in the office of a like a, a tech boot camp, I believe. Mm-hmm, it um,
1: takes place at Make School. Make School. Mm-hmm.
0: So, uh, like, I think most of the crowd is probably coming from tech background, uh, but when you introduce Um, more intentional communication practices or um, these sort of safe non-judgmental spaces into this crowd, a lot of times it's really eye-opening. It's something that people have really been hungering for. um, And I've seen people just be blown away or have their lives completely changed through some of these experiences. Um, And once you get a taste of that it's possible to, to have these kind of connections and conversations in your life, it's, can be a little addictive. Like I just want, just want it all the time. <laughs> you know, get, Welcome to my life. <laughs> yeah, get a little unsatisfied with the, uh, with the water cooler conversation uh, when you go back to work on Wednesday.
1: The the best compliment um, I've ever been given. Uh, someone approached me after salon and said, "Hey Helen, uh, you know I've been coming to salon for about a year and it's been one of the like best things in my life." Um, has changed my life. And one, that's blows my mind. But two, she says, I, I asked her, you know, what is it about salon? What have you really taken away from it? Um, she mentioned, well, one, she learns something, li- like literally learns something new every single week. Um, and for the average person, it's really hard to learn something new every week on a different topic. Um, two, she says, uh, most, you know, a lot of the new friends that she's made and who she loves um, have been through Salon, and so she's been able to meet really just the quality of people. She says, "Like is amazing," and I'll I guess I'll personally vouch for this because my closest uh, friends I've uh, a lot of them I've made through Salon as well. Uh, but three, she says, she's not satisfied with water cooler talk anymore. Um, she was on a date recently, and. Her date probably asked her something like, so, you know, like what kind of TV shows do you watch? Something, uh, you know, uh, probably pretty standard or, you know, music. And she said she actually felt this feeling in her, like the gut of her stomach saying like, Oh, that is not really the conversation I want to have. And so she stated that she asked her date instead, like, what have you been thinking about lately? Um. And that was the comment that actually made my day. She said that um, she noticed because she's not satisfied with small talk anymore or water cooler talk, um, she's made a very conscious effort of diving into deep talk with the people that she works with, the strangers that she meets, um, and her friends who are not in salon. And so for me, the fact that someone who was... um, who now comes to the salon is actually propagating and spreading another way of interacting with human beings of actually spreading deeper conversations and authentic, um, relating that makes me really happy. And I think that's for me, uh, like a gold star for salon.
0: It's a, it's a great thing to have helped build for sure. Um, we're almost out of time. So, before we go, do I have any additional questions? Is what have what have you been thinking about lately?
1: I've been thinking a lot about community. Uh, I think specifically, I've been thinking a lot about how do we make the the most out of our you know one crazy life. Um, and the I read a lot of psych studies and the one thing uh, that really makes our lives happy and whole is social integration and the strength of our social connections um that's above exercise that's above romantic relationships that's above you know our work our career our like mission reason for being um our igigai even um is really at the end of the day, the thing that makes us happiest uh, and reduces suffering the most is community. Mm-hmm. And so I think the one thing that I'd love for more people to know is that, is to place more emphasis and to truly prioritize building and maintaining their social connections. Um, I think I, I nerd out about um, friendships and social connections a lot, uh, and my friends make fun of me because I have a spreadsheet of my friends, and uh, I specifically note like who have and I talked to lately, and I take notes. And it's because you know I spend, I used to spend so much time and money and effort and energy into my academics or into my career. You know, I'll take classes um, on you know, how to market better, et cetera, et cetera. But no one really takes classes or invest time and energy in how can I be a better friend or how can I be a better communicator Um, how can I be a better you know partner Um, whether that's you know partner in life romantic partner etc and at the end of life this is what matters and so I probably devote as much or if not more time energy my intellectual resources to how can I be a better friend because from my perspective, that's what matters the most at the end of life.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think it's good for people to know that if they want better friendships, more connection, that they can actually, like, by putting conscious intent behind it, get more of it. In fact, most of the things that we want in life, for some reason it feels like there's some things that we feel like just have to happen. And like maybe friendship is one of those things that just kind of <laughs> happens and While you're doing other things, but you can, I I think it's just an important message to, to send out there that whatever it is that you want more of, like there's probably something that you can do, um, that'll help.
1: Absolutely. And friendship is definitely one of those things.
0: Let's become experts in friendship.
1: (laughs) I would love that.
0: Yeah. I would love that too. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I think that's a great note to end on. So <laughs> let's wrap it up, Helen. What do you say?
1: That sounds great. Thanks right. so much, Shake. Yeah, thanks
0: for coming. Uh, thanks for having me over, actually, <laughs> uh, and being a guest on my podcast.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for entertaining uh, Pikachu and the Golden Retriever here.